Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This week, it's Q&A time. You ask the questions and we supply the answers. Coming up, does pregnancy alter a mother's DNA? Do dogs and other animals have blood groups like humans do? Is there an ideal amount of gravity that's needed to sustain life? And why do so many scientists start their sentences with the word so? So stay tuned for those and other answers. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's meet the team. Kat Arney works for Cancer Research UK. She's also very busy writing a book all about genetics. That comes out next year. You can look forward to that. She's going to be grappling with your DNA-related queries. Ewan Keller is from the Cambridgeshire-based engineering company TWI. He'll be looking at the materials and the chemicals that make up the world around us. Ginny Smith is interested in how the brain works. And I'm Chris Smith. I'm a medical doctor. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Kat, let's kick off with this one for you. Justin Chamblay has said, I recently saw a movie called Splice. It's a Canadian-French science horror film uh, directed by Vincenzo Natale and it stars Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly. They portray a young scientist couple who are choosing to introduce human DNA into their work, splicing animal genes. So is it possible, asks Justin, to mix human and animal genes to give something super abilities? What do you think? Technically, it's completely possible because DNA is just DNA. It doesn't matter where it's come from. In the lab, you can put jellyfish genes into mice. You can put human genes into bacteria. uh, You can put worm genes into yeast. It's all DNA. It's all the same kind of nuts and bolts. And if you put a gene in that's kind of got the right bits and bobs, it will be expressed. That means it will be active and it will make a protein because that's what genes do. They make little recipes that cells use to make different proteins. Now, That's what genes do. The difficulty comes when you say, if you put certain genes into a different species, would it give it that species uh, some new powers? So, for example, say if you put uh, an olfactory receptor, something involved in smelling from a dog into a human, would a human be able to suddenly smell all these different things? And the answer is probably no, because one gene doesn't just give 
a big characteristic like that. So one gene is not responsible for super accurate sight or the smelling ability of dogs or the hearing ability of foxes or something like that. But you it, can make a person glow with a glowing green jellyfish could. gene, couldn't you? That's That'd be the good. thing. So you could do one thing that would be down to one particular protein or a couple of proteins. So you could put in something that made someone glow under UV light, this green fluorescent protein from jellyfish, which would be so cool in a nightclub. It's just like hands in the air, my hands are green. For example, they do that already with the genes that make uh, proteins involved in spider silk. You can actually make goats that produce the spider silk proteins. So I think if you're talking about a whole system, uh, you know, a smelling system, an olfactory system, jumping system, that's going to be very, very difficult to engineer. And it's the same thing with these new genome engineering technologies. We're hearing about things like CRISPR, which have been in the news a lot. You can tweak certain genes and that can affect specific proteins or specific pathways in a cell. But to engineer an entire system is going to be, I think, very difficult, if not impossible. But given an ideal world then, Ginny, what would you, what super ability would you clone in? I think some of the kind of animal super senses would be really cool. So to be able to echolocate or um, see infrared so that you could see kind of heat signatures and things, I think that would be pretty awesome. would stop you bumping into things yeah. when you got up to go into the loo in the night The as visual well. one's a good one, I, I'd say, because that's relatively easy to do because that goes along with Kat's point that uh, you can only really do this for one thing that one gene could do. So you could add a gene into your retina that gave you a colour pigment that, that was capable of seeing other things that we can't currently see. So you could do this for infrared or possibly other colours that you can't currently see and you could extend the spectrum of things you could see. Even UV, you could see UV like bumblebees do. That'd be quite good. That would be great. What about um, navigation? Like the way birds use magnetic signals from the Earth to navigate, that would be so useful. I'm always getting lost. Well, researchers have actually found out recently how they do that. There's a paper uh, just come out in the journal eLife where researchers have found using worms, actually, uh, that the worms are sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. They did a very simple experiment. They injected the worms into some jelly in a tube, which was vertical. Uh, so the worms go in one direction when they're hungry, and they go in the other direction when they're well fed. And what they did was to then get some worms from Australia, which, uh, having studied worms from Bristol in the UK, and of course in Australia the Earth's magnetic field is pointing in the opposite direction. And when they repeated the experiment, the worms do the opposite behaviour. They go in the opposite direction. So then they set up a system where they could reverse the magnetic field of the Earth for the worms by just creating an artificial magnetic field, and they could flip round what the worms did. They then looked in the worms and found these special neurons, nerve cells, inside the worms, which appear to do this job. And when you look at them, they're a really weird shape because one end of the nerve cell... Has has got this strange rod-like appendage on it that looks just like an antenna that you would put above your house to pick up TV pictures. And it's oriented along the length of the worm. And, and they think, well, perhaps with a bit of iron in there to make it wiggle with the Earth's magnetic field, it, it could be how the worms are doing the detection because they're clearly sensitive to magnetism. So they, they really do have their own inbuilt compass. So Ewan, what would, what would you clone in? Um, one thing that really appealed to me is regeneration of digits. And so if you broke an arm or you broke it right off, you could just cut it off and let a new one grow back on again. Because there are animals that do that, aren't there, mm. Kat? They're very good at regeneration. Yeah, things like flatworms, salamanders, all those kind of things. And there's a lot of interest in trying to switch those genes back on because obviously, you know, you start life as a baby growing in the womb. You have to be able to grow all this stuff. But for some reason, a lot of animals lose that ability. So there is, there is a lot of interest in being able to reactivate those developmental pathways. Ginny, here's one for you. This is uh, from Alan. 
I recently watched a National Geographic program on the deepest oceans, which are apparently very many kilometers deep. The narrator mentioned that the pressure down there is in excess of eight tons per square inch. Uh, I also noticed that there exists many and varied sea life, albeit quite strange looking. So my question is, how have these creatures evolved to be able to withstand the pressure without collapsing in on themselves? Thank you. Well, the first thing to say is that we ourselves are designed to withstand pressure. We have pressure pressing down on us all the time from the air above us. And actually, you can see how great that pressure is if you've ever seen someone suck the air out of the inside of a can and it immediately crumples because the air pressure is strong enough to actually crush that can. The only reason it doesn't crush it most of the time is because there's air inside it as well. And our bodies work the same way. There's air inside us and there's air around us and that kind of balances out. Now when you go down into the deep sea, there's a huge amount more pressure. In fact, the pressure increases about one atmosphere, so that's one of the amount of pressure we have on us, for every 10 metres you go down in the sea. So it could be that deep sea creatures have over a thousand times the pressure on them that we do, but they've evolved to live in that pressure. And one of the things they do is that they they don't have air pockets inside them like we do. They use other things. So their muscles, for example, have lots of water in them and water isn't compressible. You can't crush it. So that kind of stops them from being squeezed too much. They have lots of different changes to their physiology. So some of them have this molecule called a piezolite, which actually prevents other molecules from being distorted when they're under pressure. We don't really understand how this works because one of the big challenges of studying these animals is like we couldn't survive down there, they actually can't survive up here when there isn't as much pressure. If you went down into the deep sea, picked up one of those fish and brought it back to the surface, by the time you got it here, it wouldn't look a lot like it looked when it was down there. And that makes them really difficult to study. Ewan? Uh, yeah, that's really good, Ginny. But how then do whales manage to do it? I was waiting for someone to ask that. So whales and animals that travel between lots of different pressures actually have the hardest job of all. They have lots of different adaptations that help them. One of them is that their lungs effectively collapse so that when they're diving down, those air-filled pockets basically just disappear so they're not there anymore and they can deal with that kind of physiologically in a way that we couldn't. If our lungs collapsed, that would be really bad news. They also don't have some of the other air-filled cavities we have, like sinuses. They also have various behaviours, don't they? They surface more slowly so that rather than having compressed all this gas that was residual in their lungs down to a minuscule volume and then effectively made it dissolve in their blood, which is what happens when you put it under that pressure, if they were to surface really, really fast, they would get the bends. But they don't because they come up relatively slowly and this means that there's an opportunity for the gas to come back out of solution in the, in the blood and go into the lung tissue and it does it at a slow enough rate that you don't get bubbles forming in the bloodstream. But if you scare a whale, 
which can happen with underwater detonations and seismic surveys for oil and that kind of thing, that can make them rush to the surface and then they do get the bends. And people have found whale carcasses where they've looked at the bones of these whales, some of which are 100 plus years old, and you can see what are called osteonecrotic lesions. This is where a bubble has formed in the blood vessel uh, that supplies that patch of bone. And the bubble has lodged in the blood vessel blocking the supply and you therefore uh, devitalise the bone downstream and it dies and you get a, a hole in the bone. And, and this is signs that whales can get the bends, probably in response to being a bit frightened. Uh, question for you then, Ewan, let's stick with water. Uh, this is from Stefan and he wants to know, when water freezes it expands, so what happens to air that's dissolved in any water, such as when you're making ice cubes and that kind of thing? Yeah, this is uh, a, an interesting property of how gases interact with water because as water gets colder, it can dissolve more gas in it, which is kind of the opposite to what you normally think when you're trying to dissolve sugar in water where you've got to get warmer water to get more sugar in or more salt in. If we take a fizzy drink, for example, where you've got carbon dioxide dissolved, when you actually uh, have a litre bottle of, uh, of, of such a drink, it actually contains about six grams of carbon dioxide, which is about three litres in, in, if, if you were to let it out into the, the atmosphere. It's about as many grams of uh, sugar as there are dissolved in most fizzy <laughs> drinks as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's so, a different concept. But. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, you can pack all that carbon dioxide into the water, though you generally need a bit of pressure to do it, because that's why the carbon dioxide wants to keep coming out after uh, when you undo the cap. But what happens is when the water then starts to freeze, all the spaces, the cavities between the water molecules all start to disappear because the water molecules start orienting themselves, start to crystallise. And that basically starts kicking the gas out of the liquid. And it generally starts to form tiny little gas bubbles. And you'll see this in your ice tray in a bottle of, of fizzy pop. If it's a plastic bottle, then there's no problem because what happens is all that gas gets forced into that tiny little space at the top of the drink. So there's a very, very high pressure of gas sitting there when it's cold. But when it then warms up again, if you if you defrost your, your, your pot without taking the cap off, then that will gradually all dissolve back in. However, be aware, don't try this with cans, uh, metal cans, because there... The expansion of the uh, drink will basically crack open the side of the can and liquid will go absolutely everywhere and make an awful mess. It would be a very strong alcoholic solution, though, if it was a beer you did it with, wouldn't it? Yeah. There'd, be, there'd be plenty of alcohol left behind because that wouldn't freeze, would a it? Absolutely. I did that once by accident. I put some cans of Coke in my fridge, but then they got pushed right to the back of the fridge where it's really, really cold. And I came back to the fridge a few days later and it was absolutely covered in sticky brown gunk. And I reckon what happened is because it was so cold, the Coke can froze and burst. You can get quite another interesting phenomenon with this. And we investigated this on The Naked Scientist a few years ago, which is that uh, you can sometimes get a bottle of drink out of the fridge especially if someone's been a bit overzealous with the thermostat and made the fridge a bit too cold, and it looks liquid, you pop the cap and it instantly starts to freeze and it does it from the neck downwards. And then before you know it, you're holding a completely frozen bottle of what was formerly fizzy drink. And uh, what happens, we think, when you do this is that you get the liquid being so-called supercooled as in it's way below its own freezing temperature. But because you haven't disturbed it and the bottle is nice and shiny inside, there's nowhere for the first crystal of ice to begin to form. And then as soon as you pop the cap, you release some gas, some bubbles form at the surface and they 
act as a little disturbance in the shape of the liquid, which gives you a crystal, or, or the water touches the glass higher up and you then get a, a first crystal form, and then it starts to freeze all at once. It's pretty spooky because you go from having what you thought was going to be a nice cold beer to <laughs> basically a bottle of ice. But there we are. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Ginny Smith, Ewan Keller and Kat Arney. We're answering your science questions this week, so keep them coming. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. And the team have also been looking at what's been happening in the world of science news this week. Kat, what have you had your eye on? Well, what I've noticed this week has been a really, really fascinating study. It hasn't actually been uh, picked up that much, but it's from researchers at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And what they've done is reanalyzed data from a study that was published over 10 years ago. Now, the study that was published 10 years ago, it was done in schools in Kenya, which looked at the effects of giving deworming tablets to children. And as well as the obvious health benefits you might expect, i.e. the children didn't have so many worms, they found in this original study that more and more of the kids went to school. And that's presumably a good thing. And uh, lots of development agencies saw this study and were like, yeah, this is brilliant. Deworming tablets, really cheap. Give them out to kids and they will go to school more. Um, and everyone accepted that this was a brilliant idea. Now, the researchers from LSHTM, the, the researchers that have done this reanalysis, they looked at the data from that original study and they analysed it in exactly the same way as the original researchers had done. And they came up with different answers, which is a bit dubious in the world of science when you take the same data and you crunch it in the same way. So how did that happen? Um, well, they think that there may have been some errors in the original analysis. And then when they reanalyzed it in a different way, and then they found even more differences in the data. So it looks like although deworming kids is clearly a good thing for children's health, it doesn't actually make them go to school more. Because obviously this is really important because if you are trying to persuade people what to invest their money in from a, uh, a sort of funding and an overseas development point of view. And you say, right, look, the linchpin is education and we want as many people going to school as possible. You should spend your money on worm pills. Actually, that may be spending your money on the wrong thing to get the outcome you want. Exactly. It's this wonderful idea that you can almost pop a pill for anything. You know, give these kids pills and they'll go to school. And in fact, I think it's probably showing that you need more uh, complex interventions. Although it was quite interesting, the researchers I was talking to about this, um, they said it may just be that because there were researchers in the schools, you know, a person with a clipboard turns up, you're going to go to school because otherwise you're worried that you might look bad if you don't. So it's nothing to do with the worming. But it's, it's certainly very interesting and it highlights that there's a lot of data produced in a lot of studies and many people accept the conclusions and don't necessarily go back and go, is this really telling us what we think it's telling us? Who's checking these studies? Who's reanalyzing these studies? And there's actually more of a movement towards doing this. There's a lot of research done by thousands and thousands of scientists around the world. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. Some of it maybe needs reproducing. Some of it is pretty robust. I, I think this is how science works. It's not necessarily a flaw of science that um, some things are found to, to not stand up. But I think that there should be more acceptance that people can try and reproduce studies, make sure that findings are reproducible. The trouble is that in the world of science, we love novelty. We love the new stuff, the exciting stuff, not necessarily someone going, yeah, I, I did those experiments again and I got the same answer. 
One thing that uh, scientists are very fond of, though, Kat, is saying the word so. And Sam Brown has got in touch with us, Ginny, and he says, why do all scientists start sentences with the word so? And as a little aside, in fact, this has spawned a naked scientist drinking game we have since learned. Someone wrote to us the other day and said they're playing the naked scientist drinking game and you basically have to have a drink every time a scientist says the word so. And this poor person ended up legless within about two minutes of one person's interview because this guy said so at the beginning of every single sentence. So what's the answer? Well, it's something I've noticed myself doing as well. There are lots of different reasons that people might say so at the beginning of a sentence. Probably the simplest is it's an alternative to um that sounds a bit more like you know what you're talking about. It gives you a bit of time to think of what you're going to say next, but to sound like you know which direction you're going in. So that's a kind of a simple answer. There are some more complex ones. So so there we go. I just did it. Um, the way we use so is to link two ideas together. And normally, therefore, the so goes in the middle of a sentence. I was hungry, so I ate some food. If you put the so at the beginning of a sentence, it's suggesting that the idea you're going to say next is linked to something that's gone previously. So one reason is that it might be the scientist trying to say, I've listened to your question and I'm actually really concentrating on answering it. I'm trying to give you something that's linked to what you asked me. So it's actually a way of kind of showing that you're empathising with the questioner and trying to give them the answer that they want. So do you know what I'm finding really aggravating? I don't know if you've noticed this as well. The other one is people reaching out to me. I've got about 50 million emails and, and actually I don't mean this in a disrespectful way but they're all coming from America and these people write to me and they tell me they're reaching out to me uh, with this, that or the other they want to ask me to do or sell or, or do something and um, and I always write back flippantly, joking of course, saying you must have very long arms because I'm several <laughs> thousand miles away across the Atlantic and they just don't get the joke. They don't see that everyone is doing this but it, it's sort of similar isn't it? It's, it's trying to be empath empathic, it's trying to demonstrate sort of openness and, and friendliness and it's actually coming across as a, as a bit of a nuisance but it's also a habit. Humans pick up habits very quickly, very easily, and we like to fit in with our group. So if other people in your group are doing something, you will automatically pick it up. And that's why once something starts being used, it often kind of spreads like wildfire. It's because we're, we're tribal beings and we like to fit in. So there you go, Sam. And we will now, for the rest of the programme, endeavour not to say that nasty word. Uh, Aaron Fuller has got in touch. This is a fabulous question. He says, how long would a human take to charge electrically? And he qualifies this by saying, if a human could be fed with energy via USB ports rather than food, like the synths in Channel 4's Humans, how long would it take to fully charge an average human with, say, 2,000 calories? Those are big calories because an average person uses between 2,000, 2,500 calories a day. So I thought, well, this is quite interesting. Interesting. The, the, the guide here is you've got to look up well, how, how much current can you get from a USB port. So I looked that up because I've got to check. USB 3, you're allowed to draw up to 3 amps from that. Given that it's at 5 volts, that means that the rate of energy delivery from a USB is a maximum of 15 watts. In other words, 15 joules per second. Now, one big calorie, like is in food, that's equivalent to 4,200 joules. If you want someone to consume 2,000 big calories in a day, which is your average, that's 2,000 times 4,200. That's about 8 million joules. So to work out how long it will take in seconds to get that much energy into someone with a USB port, then you've got to divide 8 million by 4,000 
200. So that's about 53,000. So in other words, it takes you six days to get one day's worth of energy into you, one day's food ration into you. Probably not going to be a very sustainable means of nutrition unless we can up the up the wattage. A person runs at about two watts per kilo. So an average 50, 60 kilo person is running at about 100 watt. Therefore, we've got to find a way of delivering energy at that sort of rate. I think I'll stick to food. Food's nicer. Well, why don't you use more plugs? You could have several <laughs> plugs to plug one person. Now, Ewan, you've brought along a new story about some buildings. Tell us about your building material. Uh, yes, this is a, a building project in Hackney in London. It's um, the Dalston Lane development, which is uh, really a, a wonderful example of, of taking an old material wood and using it in a, in a new way to build. They reckon to be one of the largest of its type and uh, building construction projects, certainly in the country. They're going to use more than three and a half thousand cubic meters of wood which is quite a lot actually and the type of wood is uh, it's a sort of laminated structure a little bit like plywood but rather than just lots and lots of thin layers what you have here you have strips of wood which are aligned at right angles to one another and all bonded together uh, using an adhesive and a big press that gives you enormous strength doesn't it yeah you're you're giving it because wood is strong in one direction but weak in another so by putting them at 90 degrees to each other you're effectively sharing the, the benefits of both directions yeah absolutely and you're also addressing things like the fact that wood in its natural state of course starts to shrink in different ways and twist and bend so if you artificially bond it together you can make flat boards stay flat for for a long time so you won't get a bent building that's the hope when's the building going to be finished by I think it's just started now, so um, pretty soon, I think, you know, in a year or so's time. But uh, the key thing here is why they're using this approach is to, one, tick a green box, because obviously using timber uh, is a very green way of capturing carbon dioxide, as opposed to using concrete, which you need to produce a lot of carbon dioxide when you're making concrete. So it's actually a really rather environmentally unfriendly material as far as that's concerned. But it's also because wood is a darn sight lighter than concrete. And this development is actually going all the way over a whole lot of holes under the ground, the the tube, cross rail, etc. So they actually need lightweight buildings to actually be built in this. Otherwise, there may well be a little bit of collapse of the buildings uh, into the ground. Will it last as long Mm. as concrete would? Probably longer, actually, if it's treated properly. I mean, concrete from... Well, from my memory, basically reaches a peak strength at about 20, 25 years. And then it actually starts to deteriorate over time, especially if you've got steel reinforcing uh, material in it, which actually can start to rust and start to cause cracking. It doesn't happen with every concrete building, but it certainly can. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith. And I'm joined by Ginny Smith, Ewan Keller and Kat Arney. We're answering your science questions this week. So you just send the question in and we try and answer it for you. Kat, can you help Sarah out? And she's wondering, do any other mammals have blood groups like we do? This is a great question. The very quick answer is Yes, but I thought I'd unpack that a little bit and explain why. Now, blood groups are due to the molecules that are on the surface of your red blood cells. And in humans, we have two different sorts of molecules, the ones that are for the want of a better word, let's call them the A type and the B type. And then you've probably also heard of blood group O, and that is basically neither A nor B. So this gives us four possible human blood groups, A, AB, or O. In other animals, they don't exactly have the same molecules as us because these molecules enable us to recognise what's us, our self, versus what's foreign, not self. So other animals, they have a very similar system because it's all part of the immune system, how you check out is this tissue 
belonging to me or not. Um, so apes, because they're very closely related to humans, they have very similar blood markers. Um, there are other types of markers in other species. So, for example, dogs have about 13 different blood groups because they have a whole bunch of different molecules that are found on the surface of their blood cells. Cats, quite simple. They have about three. So, yes, other animals do have blood groups, not the same as ours, but uh, fulfilling a similar function. Didn't stop some people in history trying to put those blood samples into people, though, in the yes. uh, in the mistaken belief that this, this might be a good replacement for human blood. I think there was lots of experiments with dogs. Dogs have done a lot of uh, hard work in the circulatory research area, people putting dog blood into humans and vice versa and all sorts of things. Lovely. Ginny, Sean Hoskins says, why is it I can remember the most obscure trivia but I just can't spell the word necessary. He says, for the record, I can write it out hundreds of times on a piece of paper. I can put it on a flashcard, spell it out letter by letter verbally. I can't remember it a few hours later. Well, our brains remember things by trying to fit them in with stuff we already know. So it's much, much easier to remember a fact that links to another fact that you already know. And this means that Trivia can be quite easy to remember, particularly if it's a piece of trivia and something you're interested in and something you already know a bit about. Spellings are kind of arbitrary, so they're a lot harder to remember. You just have to rote learn them. And some people find that really tricky. One way you can help yourself learn things like that is to try and relate it to something that you already know. So, for example, if you're having trouble with the 1C and 2S in necessaries, you might want to remember that when you leave the house, you need one coat, but you need two shoes. Now, because that's something you know, every time you go out, you put on one coat and you put on two shoes. Hopefully, next time you go to spell the word necessary, you'll remember that it's necessary to have one coat and two shoes. And that will help. Can't help with the vowels, though. There's a number of words which are judged to be extremely hard to spell yeah. in English. Do you want to have a go? Oh, no, I'm awful at Do you spelling. Want to try one of them. Can you try this one. Loquacious. <laughs> Not a chance. I've been watching a programme about child geniuses where they have to do spelling out loud and they're incredible, some of them. People's brains just work in such different ways. I read ridiculously quickly and I think that's why I can't spell because I basically inhale whole sentences in one. I don't break it down letter by letter. And that means that I, I'm really, really bad at spelling. That's my excuse. Want to try loquacious, Ewan? Oh, gosh. No, I'm going to pass on that as well. But spelling's only been invented fairly recently. If you read very old texts, people just made up how they fancied spelling a word. And as long as it sort of sounded vaguely right and you knew what it was meant to be, it was fine. The things that do get my go to the recent accepted changes in spellings or spellings where other countries spell them wrong. For example, aluminium, as in our American uh, cousins. Careful with aluminium, because in fact the, the correct way of, of spelling it is the way that is spelled in America. It's aluminum. And it was actually Humphrey Davy who uh, changed it to aluminium. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Louise is on the telephone. Hello, Louise. Hi, Chris and uh, Naked Scientist. Far away. Um, what can we do for you? Been um, diagnosed with a kidney infection, which has been caused by a urinary tract infection, which is quite common in women. The one thing that I keep getting told, though, in the future is to drink lots of cranberry juice to help prevent me from getting uh, water infections in the future. I was just wondering if there's anything scientific behind that, or is it just an old wives' tale? People have looked at this, and there's some suggestion that what cranberry juice does is it does get filtered into the urine. 
and it changes some of the molecules that are present on the surfaces of the urinary tracts, so the urethra, for example. Because when someone gets a urine infection, usually it's E. coli, our friend E. coli. It's a gut bug that crawls into the wrong place. And it does that by clinging onto the walls of your urinary tract by expressing what they uh, ironically call P. pili. These are effectively molecular grappling hooks that make the bacterium sticky. And there's evidence that cranberry juice might be able to give you the anatomical equivalent of Teflon so that you become a bit slippery and the E. coli can't cling on. Now, the jury's out, actually. People have done a number of studies on this. Some trials show that it is effective. Other trials show that it isn't effective. So at the moment, I don't think people judge this to be uh, adequate evidence base for us to say this will prevent you getting a UTI. What's certainly uh, unarguably true, though, is if you drink plenty and you pee plenty, you will therefore increase the odds of detaching the microbes from where they shouldn't be and flush them out. And that means that you're less likely to have a urine infection in the first place. Getting dehydrated, especially on hot days when you can uh, get an overgrowth of the bugs because you're not washing them out as frequently, that's a bigger risk factor. So I would urge you, if you are at risk of having UTIs, which, which can happen, it's very, very common, then drinking plenty, regardless of what's in the drink you drink, within reason, um, will probably help. That was interesting. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, you're most welcome. Thanks for calling us up. Now, Kat, uh, one for you. Mouse in the US has written to us and said, Dear Naked Scientists, uh, my question is about mothers carrying fetuses. Uh, will a fetus change a mother's DNA? And actually, she specifically refers to mothers being surrogates, for example. If you had someone else's baby that you developed in, in your uterus, would you end up with that baby's DNA elsewhere in your body? Again, the simple answer is yes. Um, the more complex answer is to look at why. And basically, there's a barrier between the mother's blood and the baby's blood, which is the placenta. But stuff can kind of get across it. And this is very interesting because there's uh, evidence that DNA, bits of DNA from the fetus, can get into the mother's blood. Um, this is actually starting a, a very interesting area of testing maternal blood for the presence of, for example, genetic defects in the fetus, uh, which could potentially be really useful because to look for things like uh, Down syndrome and things like that, you actually have to take a sample from the womb and that can have a, an increased risk of miscarriage. So to be able to do these kind of blood tests could potentially be very useful. So yes, DNA from the fetus can get into the bloodstream of the mother and potentially also cells as well could be travelling around in the mother's bloodstream. Now, does it matter? Does it make a difference? Probably not. The biggest risk uh, to a mother from the fetus is probably from things like immune reactions and things like that, from molecules produced by the fetus. Um, there can be sort of blood group incompatibilities and things like that. But we do know, for example, that there are many, many, many successful IVF pregnancies that are done with donor eggs. So this is women carrying uh, babies that they have no relation to. So you know, and they don't seem to have any ill effects on them or their children. I think there's some suggestion that people who have been pregnant are much more prone to having autoimmune conditions where the immune system turns on itself or on the body itself. And one suggestion is that this may be because there are cells from the baby lurking in those tissues from when the mother was pregnant and when the mother is pregnant there's a degree of immune switch off or immunosuppression to avoid the mother's immune system attacking what is 50% genetically not her because 50% of the baby is obviously the dad's DNA but once the pregnancy is over then you've got this tissue there which is not the mother 
and then it turns on it in some cases and you get things like arthritis, thyroid disease or maybe SLE, lupus. Mark's on the phone. Hello, Mark. Hi, Chris. Hi, gang. How you doing? Very well, thanks. Fire away. Right. Back in the 60s when I took an interest in chemistry sets and various things and books and stuff, you know, I I used to be quite into that, Um, there were 93 elements, um, you know, the base of, of sort of life and everything of chemistry how many are there now? Uh, you know, you're talking about 45 years since I uh, last took sort of real interest. So that's a question. Can anybody answer that one? Ewan, how many elements now in the periodic table? Right, I think there's something like 114 now, I think. So, um, there's a number of synthetic elements which have incredibly transitory lives of trillionths of a second which are more sparkles in a theorist's mind rather than in reality but in various nuclear reactors and in the large hadron collider and similar instruments they have succeeded in literally forcing the building blocks of atoms nuclei where you've got protons and neutrons and the electrons together to form atoms which are ridiculously heavy, so they're at the far end of the periodic table, which will sort of literally hold together for virtually no time at all before they fall apart because basically they're just too unstable uh, to hang on in there. But the number of stable elements will not have changed since you were doing your work, though I do believe there are some theoreticians who think that there are some super heavy atoms which theoretically would be stable, but they just haven't managed to build them up yet to see whether they will work. But you never know in the future that they might exist. These are so-called islands of stability, aren't they? The idea being that at the moment these things don't hang around for very long but if we could make something of the right sort of size then it will hang around for long enough and it will act as a stepping stone that we can then use to get to even bigger elements which will have all kinds of exciting properties because we we don't know what these things might behave like we might be able to make exciting things out of them that will do exciting jobs that the elements we currently are endowed with on earth can't do. I do confess I've just gone and checked online and it's actually 118 according to the periodic table now. And I hope with a slightly more imaginative name than Anam Decium, which uh, number 112 had to live with for a little while until they came up with something a little bit better for it. Yeah, well, at least it's not unobtainium. (laughs) Which is kind of possibly where we are next. Mm. Mark, great question. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Ginny Smith, Ewan Keller and Kat Arney. We're answering your science questions this week, so keep them coming. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Ginny, what have you had your eye on for us this week? Well, I've got a really interesting story about an ancient fossil snake that's been discovered. Now, it hasn't been discovered the way that a lot of fossils are by someone out, you know, in the wilderness hunting for fossils. David Martell was actually on a field trip with his students to a museum and looking at the fossils in that museum in Germany. And he spotted something really interesting. It looks exactly like a snake. It's very small. It's only about 15 centimetres long. But when he looked at it, he saw that it had legs. Now, that's interesting because snakes don't normally have legs. And there have been some examples found of snakes that have hind legs, just two pe- I think at the back. have that, don't they? little pair of vestigial legs. Yes, they've got tiny little vestigial ones. But this one actually has four legs. And a snake with four legs has never been seen before in the fossil record. So he knew that they were onto something particularly interesting here. He's arguing that this definitely is a snake. There's some debate here. So we know that snakes evolved from lizards. So they once had legs and then they lost them. 
This, they think it's a snake because it has scales like a snake. And they even found in its stomach some little tiny bones, which shows that it was eating other vertebrates. And of course, most snakes nowadays, I think possibly all snakes, eat other animals. They're predatory. Not all experts are agreeing that this was a true snake because there are legless lizards that are lizards that have lost their legs but aren't snakes. So there's still a little bit of debate here. But if it is a snake, which some people are saying it is, it would tell us something that we didn't know about how evolution happened. Because there's been a lot of argument about whether snakes evolved from lizards that swam or lizards that burrowed. Because in both of those examples, you can lose your legs and still sort of get around perfectly well. This one supports the burrowing hypothesis. This fossil doesn't have any adaptations that would make it a good swimmer, but it has a really kind of pointy nose that would have made it a good burrower. So that shows support for that hypothesis. The other interesting thing is that the legs don't appear to be useful for walking or even sort of dragging yourself around and crawling, but they aren't completely useless. They aren't vestigial like the ones you mentioned on the living snakes that we see sometimes. They've become kind of highly specialised and they think that they might actually have used it to hold on to their prey because they've got these really long fingers and possibly even hold on to each other when they were mating as well. But it does look like They've stopped being useful for one thing and they've evolved to be useful for something else, which is really interesting. And that's given rise to the snake's name, which I think is great. It's called Tetrapodophis amplectus, which roughly translated means the four-legged hugging snake. I still don't think I'd like to be hugged by it, though, Ginny. Ewan, Paige is wondering... How much silly putty would you need to cover the world? Now this, uh, let me give you the background. She says, I've got some silly putty. It's slowly enveloping a can of 35p energy drink. It's a three ounce blob. And we were wondering how much of this we would need and what speed (laughs) for it to envelop our entire globe. Yes, I I really think this is one of these crazy questions that... You can treat it in a number of different ways. So I thought I'd just... Not with a pinch of salt, though, because that wouldn't stop the silly putty working. Well, yeah, that's very true. But I thought I'd just give it a go and uh, do some simple calculations in relation to sort of how much area is in the Earth or on around the Earth, which a uh, simple uh, bit of math, 4 pi r squared, gives you the area, which uh, works roughly out to be 510 million square kilometres. That's the surface area of our whole planet. Yeah. Though, again, I kind of wonder from the the source I looked at whether that actually includes all the humps and bumps and going up to the Himalaya or not, which will obviously increase the area a bit more. But if we assume, for simplicity's sake, it's 510 million square kilometres. The next question then is, is how much silly putty do we want to cover the earth? So just for simplicity's sake, I decided to make it one centimetre deep. Basically, if you do the number crunching, as far as I could get, you end up with needing a large piece of silly putty that's going to be 5.1 trillion tonnes in weight. So that's 5.1 thousand billion tonnes in weight, to use the sort of the terminology that we have for money matters that we hear so much about in the news. Does it float? 
<laughs> well, I was going on the basis that it would have the same density as water. So I decided to go for uh, one gram per cubic centimetre, again, for simplicity. Now, that amount of silly putty, if you were to actually make it into a cube, would actually be a cube of side of 17 kilometres in size. So we're talking a pretty big lump of silly putty. Assuming you started at the top and plonked it on the North Pole, I think, and then let it sort of smear itself out... There would be a thermal effect as well, wouldn't there? Because would the low temperature affect the, the material behaviour? Yeah, it probably would. It would slow it down quite a lot. So Yeah, uh, so what what could we do to compensate? We'd have to heat it up. <laughs> yeah, my it is often quite a dark colour anyway. So if it covers the North Pole, then it will give you some increased global warming. So that would probably speed things up. Oh, so it might be a bit. self-fulfilling prophecy. It may speed <laughs> things up and uh, and help it smear out more. Yeah. I've... Why Why does it have those weird properties? What's special about the material that is silly putty that makes it do that? Well, basically, it's the way in which it links together at a molecular level. Basically, it's what's called a non-Newtonian fluid. It doesn't obey the the laws of Newtonian physics. And uh, as a result of that, it has one or two peculiar properties that if you let it sit on its own, it will actually flow like what you'd imagine a normal liquid to be. But if you subjected to a, a rapid force and this is this is because the molecules are sort of locked in a way that makes them resist force in a temporary manner so if you hit a piece of silly putty with a hammer for example it will actually act as if it's a solid and you can actually break a ball of silly putty up by almost fracturing it and then if you let it sit for a while it will then go back into blobs so it's a, a little bit like the guy in Terminator 2 when he gets frozen solid and basically he got hit and got smashed into lots of pieces but then he then became a liquid and, and became whole again. So silly putty, a very interesting class of materials. Cornflour in water does exactly the same thing. And anyone who's been to the, the science festival in Cambridge will have enjoyed running over pots of uh, cornflour. Uh, but you don't want to hang around for too long, otherwise you, you sink into it up to your knees. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Ginny Smith, Ewan Keller and Kat Arney. Now, Ginny, can you help Camille from Poland? Hello, Naked Scientist. In media, quite often we can hear that meditation changes the brain. I thought everything we do, study or experience changes our brains. Is there something unique to the practice of meditation or is it just another media hype and in fact meditation is no better than other relaxation slash concentration techniques or cognitive behavioral therapies? I'd like to hear what's your view on this. Thank you. Well, that's a really interesting question. Now, meditation has been used for thousands of years, but just recently people have started doing scientific research into it. And you're right when you say that everything we do changes the brain, but it, the changes don't happen immediately with just one time of doing something. What you need is to do something repeatedly and by repeating it, then you'll build up the changes in the brain. So what meditation does is you have to practice it. You have to do it repeatedly and you get better at it. And while you're doing that, there are changes going on in the brain. So using EEG studies, which look at the brain waves that you produce, there've been lots of studies on mindfulness meditation, which link lower frequency waves with meditation. And that suggests that when you're in this meditative state, you're more relaxed. But actually, when they look at the waves more carefully, you've also got waves linked with attention and awareness. So you're sort of in this interesting, relaxed, but aware state, which is something that a lot of other practices don't put you into. And when you look at the brains of people who meditate regularly compared to people who don't, you actually see 
changes in the structure of the brain. Can so, I just ask you then, Ginny, just for clarity, is that there already and therefore people who are good at meditation already have that ability? Or is this something that comes along with people who become practised at the art of meditation? So that's a difficult question to answer because a lot of studies, because it's cheaper and easier, will take a group of meditators and a group of non-meditators. There have been some intervention studies that have seen some of these changes over an eight-week course of meditation. So that does suggest that there are structural changes going on. We also know that meditation can improve medical conditions, depression, anxiety, a lot of these kind of things can be improved with meditation. And that suggests that there must be something going on in the brain. Now, there are regions that are consistently altered and they're regions that are involved in things like memories and being aware of your own body, as well as attention regulation and tuning out distractions. Well, you can see that you need to do those things when you're meditating. You're tuning into your kind of inner consciousness and tuning out what's going on around you. And we know that the more you practice something, whether it's a musical instrument or a sport, the better you get at it. So the suggestion is that meditation is practising being aware of your emotions, dealing with them, tuning out distractions. That is going to change your brain as everything does and make you better at those things. Good advice there, Ginny. And this is definitely something I do because when I'm doing sort of boring, repetitive tasks, gardening, mowing the grass, that kind of thing, I often use this as a really good opportunity to sort of mentally rehearse things I want to try and remember or run through facts that I want to sort of get to the bottom of. And it's a, it's really good to sort of have that almost isolation from everything else because you're doing something boring and repetitive and you can put yourself in a sort of cognitive bubble and concentrate on doing something completely different? Well, the way memory works, the more times you recall a memory, the stronger the trace of that memory is in your brain and the more likely you are to remember it in the future. So I think that's a very good idea. Now, Ed Wilson has been listening very, very carefully to what you were saying, Ewan, and uh, he's got an observation and a question. His observation is that your silly putty wouldn't flow up the slopes. So you can respond to that in a second. He also wants to know... What effect would the salt that I mentioned have on the silly putty? Okay, well, you're quite right. Um, We're not claiming that the silly putty would roll up the hills. And certainly any bump uh, or a tree or a plant or a building is going to act as a bit of a barrier and stop the silly putty enveloping it. But uh, I think close to where our 17 kilometre square cube does touch the earth, I think it will probably envelop most things at that point. So I think, yes, gravity will will take take its toll. But uh, initially, I think we will get a complete deluging of this uh, crazy liquid. And the salt or sugar? Probably the easiest way I can describe this is by giving a little idea why the silly putty works or similar types of materials work. Uh, So basically, these types of fluids, these non-Newtonian fluids, work in a way that the molecules interact with one another. These are these long chains of essentially polymer-type molecules, which sort of partially lock together. This is a phenomenon called hydrogen bonding, where you have an interaction between hydrogen and oxygen groups on one molecule, lock on to the the, the opposite um, hydrogen oxygen on on another molecule. Essentially, makes them sticky. It makes them start to lock together. And and if if they are made to stop in a dynamic way, uh, say if you hit this liquid with a, a force, a hammer, you will cause it to react like a, a solid. 
uh, and uh, that will give this weird phenomenon of cracking on the surface. If you add something like salt to the material, the salt dissolves into the silly putty and actually sort of stops this interaction happening. Now, I can uh, give a real example of my discovery of non-Newtonian fluids when I was probably about eight or nine years old, and that was when I was trying to make custard on my own. So we're talking about the old-style custard powder, not the stuff which is all mixed up. So here you took your custard powder, you put it in a bowl, and you were supposed to mix in an amount of sugar and milk all in one go. But what I did was I mixed the milk in first. And what I discovered was this non-Newtonian fluid behaviour, because essentially custard powder is just corn flour, which is essentially starch with some egg powder in it. But when you add the sugar into this amazing uh, liquid it stops being an amazing liquid and just becomes a boring one. So here we have exactly the same scenario where the sugar is dissolving in the milk, which in turn is then disrupting this phenomenon and stopping the, the silly putty or the custard powder to work. So become unsilly putty. Hugh, and thanks very much. Now, Stephen Pringles got in touch and uh, he's making mention of the fact that the Kepler Space Telescope announced just this week gone that it's discovered... Earth's twin. They're calling it actually Earth 2.0 because there is this planet which is 60% larger than the Earth but very, very similar to the Earth in all of its other characteristics. And so he says if Kepler's found this planet 60% again bigger than the size of the Earth, that could mean that the gravity could be 60% stronger, which would in turn imply the atmosphere might be different from that of the Earth. So what would this mean for viability of Earth-like life forms? Is in the same way as there's a, a habitable zone for temperatures, could there be a habitable zone for gravity? Is there a gravitationally relevant zone for life as well? What might those parameters be? Well, the thing to think about, Simon, is that uh, obviously just because something is bigger than the Earth, it doesn't mean that its gravity is going to be the same amount bigger than the Earth, because it depends what it's made of. Jupiter is some 318 times more massive than the Earth is, but it doesn't mean that you would weigh 318 times more on the surface of Jupiter, because the radius of Jupiter is about 60,000 kilometres compared with Earth's 6,000. And because gravity actually works through a centre of mass, and it's proportional to the square of the size of something, then actually you're talking about a, a, a mass on the surface of Jupiter actually weighing about three times more there than it would on the Earth. So you can't assume just because something's bigger that uh, the gravity is going to be that much different at the surface because it would depend what the object is made of and how much it, it, its mass is. But one thing to bear in mind here is regardless of what gravity might do to the atmosphere and the surface of, of a planet, Water, as Ginny was saying earlier, means that things can live under enormous pressures. There are things living 10 kilometres down in the oceans quite happily because they've adapted to do so. And we think water is essential for life anyway. So even if you did have a very, very big planet with very, very powerful gravity, which would mean that you as a human would weigh a huge amount on the surface of the Earth. And incidentally, NASA thinks that if we experience gravity of about four times what we've got on Earth, that would probably render a human inviable. So we just couldn't exist in that environment. If you were a water dweller, then you'd probably have no problem at all like those fish at the bottom of the ocean. Kat, uh, Katani, um, got this lovely question from Paul who says, what's the best sample of DNA I can make? Is it spit in a bottle, scraping from the insides of cheeks, patch of dead skin off the elbow, bit of hair? What's the best source? To be honest, uh, when scientists are doing things like genetic studies, the best source of DNA is actually the blood. Red blood cells don't have DNA in because they lose it as they mature, but white blood cells are packed full of it. So a good sample of blood, you spin it down, you take out the white blood cells, nice and pure, get a good sample of DNA. But actually, Paul is a man. 
And uh, he has a great source of DNA in his trousers. And without getting too graphic about it, sperm is actually a really fantastic source of lots of DNA. Kat, thank you very much. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to my co-conspirators, Ewan Keller, Ginny Smith and Katani. Thank you very much to Amy Goodfellow and James Farr for helping us out. The Naked Scientist returns next week with a look at the world of hormones, including testosterone and why it's so essential, but why it does bad things too. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. My name's Chris Smith. This is RN. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.